Uh, good morning. Um, today we're looking at uh, Psalm 51. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back, and you'd be very welcome to grab one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we'd love for you to keep that Bible. Um, and if you wanted to read it with somebody, uh, pretty much anyone in this room would love to buy you a coffee and read it with you. Uh, if you want to find Psalm 51, if you open your Bible dead center, you'll be in the Psalms. If you're in Proverbs, you've gone too far. If you're in Job, you've not gone far enough. Uh, if you're in any other book, then you probably need new glasses uh, or to check something out. Um, this psalm, you'll see there's like a li- little introduction part. Um, it says that um, this psalm of David comes when Nathan the prophet went in to, to speak to him. Um, there's, a, there's, a kind of a, there's a whole big backstory to this psalm. David was the king of Israel. He was a kind of national hero. He had defeated Goliath. Um, the Bible describes David as a man of to God's own heart. But this psalm comes from a, one of the darkest times in David's life. Uh, David had been um, doing kingly things, and he, was, he got up, he went onto his roof, um, and he was walking around. Uh, and in the distance he saw, uh, on another roof, there was a, a girl bathing. That girl was Bathsheba. Uh, and David was pretty interested. And so being a king, um, as he could, he brought Bathsheba over to him. Um, they ended up uh, having sex. She bore a son to David. Um, but this lady was married. This lady was married to a soldier called Uriah. Uh, and Uriah came back. Uh, he, he had been uh, out at war. He met David. Uh, but David didn't own up to anything that he had done. In fact, David sent Uriah back to battle and had Uriah strategically killed so that he wouldn't be able to find out what David had done to Bathsheba. Uh, David kind of went on. And it wasn't until Nathan the prophet came uh, to David that David really kind of fully realized what he did. Uh, and this psalm comes from David's uh, realization of, of what a bad thing he did. This is his psalm of repentance. This is his psalm uh, where he cries out to God for mercy uh, because of the awful thing that he has done. Uh, so that's the context uh, that we read this psalm in. Uh, we're going to read it now together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. As we read this psalm, uh, we get a look in on a very, on a very vulnerable David. Uh, we see he's vulnerable because he's admitting all his weakness. He's crying out in desperation to God because he has no hope in and of himself. There's nowhere else he's finding hope. And what's more, this is David, this is David who is a king. This is David who has all the authority uh, you could have on earth. This is the David who has so much power. And yet there's nothing even as king that he can do to rectify his situation. It's refreshing for us to read, uh, not just because it's a world leader who's admitting to the wrong things they did to women, but because we see a repentance that's not based on human work, it's not based on, on humans trying harder or doing better. We see a repentance that's based on the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of God. As David begins, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And this kind of sets the tone for the whole psalm. Uh, David's uh, great idea is, is for God to act. David, uh, his cry for mercy, it comes from a great understanding of who David himself is and what he has done and who God is and what God does. Throughout the psalm, even though this is David's repentance, we actually uh, see David have 18 requests of the Lord. This idea of repentance, it is, it is, it is God's action here. It is not uh, David uh, doing X, Y, and Z. It is not David trying harder. It is not David doing better. It is God acting out of love and out of mercy. Uh, because David knows uh, what he has done, but he also knows that there's nothing he can do to make it right. There's nothing in his effort that he can do to make himself right with God. He can't buy his way out of it. He can't work his way out of it. The only solution David has here is to cry out to God for mercy. And David's picture of who it is he's crying out to uh, is really clear. When asking for mercy, um, we kind of, or at least I tend to get this picture of like a, a kind of evil school teacher um, who just loves nothing more than to get kids in trouble. Uh, you know, you do something mildly wrong and there's no way you're going to escape without at least a smack. But David doesn't see God as kind of this wicked boss or a wicked teacher, uh, but he sees God as this loving father. He sees God as a God of steadfast love and of abundant mercy. God is not standing there waiting, uh, smiling at the chance to lay into David for what he did. But rather, God is bending down to pick David up and to put him back on the right path. God really hates uh, what David did. God hates evil. He really does. But when his people sin, and when his people go down the wrong path, he is the God that shows abundant mercy towards them. Uh, when we sin or when we, when we mess up, uh, there's a great temptation, at least in part, to kind of try and rectify it ourselves. We can say, oh, well, I lied to that person, but now if I go and tell them the truth, then it'll all be okay. Or if I fell asleep during this sermon, I can listen to another one when I get home. And it's great to do those things, to tell the truth again or listen to another sermon, uh, but they are absolutely not what gets us right again with God. This distance... Uh, this barrier that is caused between us and God when we sin is, is, completely, is completely out of our control to fix it. There's nothing we can do. As Christians, uh, our faith is not some kind of balancing act where we have to balance out the good and the evil that we did. But it's about this loving God who gives mercy to those who have no hope of balancing the books. 
the sin we have done, it makes a debt far bigger um, than we could ever pay off. But this God of mercy sent Jesus, and that death on the cross paid that very debt. And not in some kind of way like a mortgage or a student loan where it comes off over a few years and you have to kind of keep giving and keep giving. It's a one-time-for-all debt. It's cleared. It's cancelled. It's never coming back. The debt of sin is gone because of what Jesus did. Uh, as, we, as we keep going um, in the kind of second paragraph, uh, David talks about knowing his transgressions. Uh, he knows his sin. It's ever before him, so he thinks of it all the time. And this idea of repentance... Um, so of turning from sin, of turning from sin to God. It's naturally impossible unless we are first able to recognize that sin in the first place. Not only uh, is it vital to recognize the sin, but also to recognize who this sin is against. All throughout David's actions, uh, he knew it was deeply wrong. Okay, that's why he, kind of, he did it in secret. He got, kind of got Uriah killed in kind of a secret way. But for the world watching... David didn't really do much sin at all. Uh, We see this in verse 4. He says that um, against you, you only have I sinned. Now that seems to us kind of iffy. Because David, obviously, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But for the world watching, David did nothing wrong. Because in the ancient world, a king um, basically had the power to do this, and it was completely fine. A king could very well have any lady that he liked, any number of ladies that he liked, A king could have any of his subjects killed, really, without consequence. They didn't need to do the kind of sneaky bit that David did. And so when the world uh, saw David, they didn't see this sin. By the world's standards, what David did was not wrong. But the measure of sin does not come from the world's standard of sin. The measure of sin comes from God's standard of sin. Now, if we want to see God's standard of sin... Um, there's, a, there's a couple of main ways. The first is, is quite simply the Bible. If the Bible condemns something, then it is wrong. It is a sin. There's, kind of, there's a lot of simple things. And so um, you can read the Bible simply and you can see that stealing is wrong. But for David, he kind of knew it was wrong, but he didn't do anything about it. He kind of downplayed the fact that this was really something he shouldn't do. It's easy in ourselves to kind of downplay or manipulate what the Bible says. We ask that question like the serpent, did God really say that I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z? And so that's why uh, it's so important that Nathan came in to see David. Uh, David knew the Bible. Um, Nathan did too. Uh, But it was David's friend Nathan who came in and actually showed David uh, what he had done. David had to rely uh, on one of his friends to help him recognize that sin and the consequences of that sin. And that's where as a church family, as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, uh, we have a responsibility to help others just as Nathan did. We have a responsibility to help others see their sin uh, so they can turn from it. Now immediately, immediately, that probably conjures up kind of ideas of like the Pharisees, uh, we think of hypocrisy or trying to make others look worse than ourselves. And those things are absolutely wrong. And Jesus has some of his harshest warnings for those. But there's a very real responsibility, as Nathan did, uh, as our brothers and sisters, to help um, people to, to see their sin, to do it gracefully yet firmly, uh, so that our brothers and sisters aren't 
continue to go down the wrong path away from God, but they can turn um, to face God and enjoy the great blessing of knowing him. As David continues, uh, he says that God would be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. Uh, David is fully aware um, that what he has done fully deserves and requires God's justice. And if God was to act harshly here, it would be fully within his right to do so. And it would be a great testament to God's justice to do that. God punishes sin. It's a part of his character. uh, And it's a good thing. But we see here, uh, God actually has mercy instead. And continuing, it says there, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David wasn't born in some kind of bad way. There wasn't like extramarital affairs or nothing going on there. But sin had always been a part of his nature from day one, as it is for all of us. We aren't in a kind of neutral, sinless state until we reach a certain age. We are born sinners. That is our our natural inclination. Uh, In verse 6 there, uh, we'll come back to that a bit later. It links in with a later verse. Uh, So we'll go back into verse 7. Verse 7 kind of picks up on the washing theme uh, that comes out in the first paragraph. And the way David describes this washing is quite significant. So first, uh, he asks God to wash him thoroughly. And in verse 7, he uses the word purge. It's quite extreme uh, washing language. Uh, I worked at a, at a summer camp in America for two summers. Uh, and I looked after boys aged, boys aged 7 to 9. And on one night, every couple of weeks, there'd be uh, this kind of color run event type thing. Um, and so you throw powder paint over each other. And naturally, you get covered all over. And so the boys, in the evening, they'd go in for their showers... And one of our jobs was to check them when they come out to make sure they're actually showered because most of the time they just want to walk in and walk straight back out. On the color run night, the stuff was so kind of ingrained in them that it take them each about three showers to get it off. You just, they come out, you tell them to look in the mirror, they go back in and have another one. The stuff was stuck on them. They couldn't shake it off. It was ingrained in them. It was all over them. That's exactly how David sees his sin. It is all over him. It's dirty, it's staining, it's vile. But the one doing the washing here, it's not David. The one who makes David whiter than snow is the Lord. The one doing the washing is God. If we try to cleanse ourselves of sin, we only end up making it worse. We kind of rub it in. But God's call to us is to ask him to wash us thoroughly, to have him purge us. And the ironic but beautiful thing is that what God washes us with isn't like personal extra strong, but it's blood. Jesus' blood from the cross, that's what God washes us in. That's the thing that makes us clean. That's the thing that makes us whiter than snow. Uh, It says purge with hyssop. I don't really know if hyssop is common knowledge or something. Uh, It's probably something that my mom would know about and she might keep in a cupboard. Um, But I definitely had to look it up just to check. Uh, It was used in the Bible in the Old Testament a lot to kind of signify cleanliness. And so when a leper became clean, so not a leper anymore, um, they would get sprinkled with hyssop mixed with some other stuff. And that would allow them to re-enter the village. It was like a a ceremonial cleansing. But the hyssop wasn't actually the thing that 
you know, physically made them clean. It didn't make them not a leper. Or they used it in their house when it was moldy. The hyssop didn't get rid of the mold. But the hyssop signified that a real cleansing had gone on. And that's why David uses this hyssop idea, because, because it's to signify that God has made him clean. There is a cleaning that has gone on. It is God's work. And this hyssop tells the world that God has had mercy on him. Uh, moving on to verses uh, 10 and 12. Uh, these verses kind of really capture the heart of what is going on in repentance. It's kind of summed up when David asks God to create in him a clean heart. Our natural hearts are far from clean. Uh, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. Our natural hearts um, are inclined to sin. They wake up in the morning, they think what they're going to do that day, and the answer is just sin. A natural heart doesn't have the ability to choose not to sin. And so this idea of repentance is completely impossible without a heart change. But that's not something we can do. We can't create a new heart. But with God involved, the story is a whole lot different. The fourth and fifth words of the Bible are God created. God loves creating things. He has created God. Uh, Creating is in his nature. He made the whole universe and he did it just by speaking. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when we become Christians, when we ask God for this new heart, um, we are the, the kind of first fruits of this new creation. This new creation that we long for in the future, where God will make all things right, uh, when there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, and there'll be no sickness or sadness or mourning or crying. The first picture we get is the work God does in us, the work of God making us a new heart, a clean heart. Because repentance isn't about us uh, trying hard to do better. It's about asking God to make us better. If we, if we give this request, if we ask God for a clean heart, it's not something that he's ever going to say no to. It's not something he's ever going to turn down. Uh, heaven holds a great party when people ask for a new heart. When people become brand new, when people become Christians, um, nothing brings a, a bigger smile to God's face. And that offer of a new heart is an offer that goes out to all of us. No matter um, where we come from, what we have done, uh, that offer of a new heart uh, goes to all. It is a serious offer. Um, God extends it uh, to all. And he would absolutely love it um, for that offer of a new heart to be accepted. In verse 11, uh, David's prayer, it comes back to the covenant that God made with David. Uh, there's a covenant recorded in, it's in 2 Samuel 7. And God says this. When he, that is David, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, David saw firsthand how Saul, um, so the Lord's spirit kind of left Saul uh, as he grew older, uh, and Saul became miserable. And David saw that, uh, and David realized that he would rather lose absolutely anything than have the spirit of God leave him. David would rather lose anything than that relationship he had with God um, 
be lost away. The beauty of God's mercy and grace is that God doesn't just wipe away our sin, a big deal as though that is, and just leave it there. But God's mercy brings us into relationship with God. The God of the whole universe is in relationship with us. We get to know God, we get to love God, we get to be blessed by God, we get to talk to God. We have God always with us by his spirit. It's not a relationship that we we enter by our own efforts. We come into this relationship just by saying, oh God, have mercy on me. This mercy is so great, it is such good news that people like you and me can come into the presence of the almighty God, uh, not scared, not afraid, but as sons of daughters of him. Uh, The next paragraph, um, we won't really get into very much, but it kind of speaks of David's response to this restoration. Uh, What's really important is that we don't see this kind of paragraph as as David's bargaining chips. He doesn't say to God, you know what, I'll tell a hundred sinners about you if you forgive me. It's not like David doesn't have anything to bargain for, but these things come as his response to God's mercy. He's not trying to earn God's mercy. David is responding to God's mercy with these promises. David would find it natural that uh, as he experiences God's mercy, uh, he goes on to speak about it always. Uh, It's like if you have that friend who started eating kale and then they never seem to shut up about it. That's David's natural response to God's mercy. He will go on saying it and saying it and saying it because it is such good news for everybody to hear. Uh, in the closing verses, there's kind of like, there's a lot of sacrifice language. Uh, and David has a, has a proper understanding of sacrifice that all of Israel seemed to not really get at all. God commanded sacrifice from the, from the very beginning. Cain and Abel were sacrificing. Uh, right up to now, we are called to be living sacrifices. But God really hates sacrifice that is made without a proper heart behind it. Uh, Back in Genesis, God rejects Cain's sacrifice um, because it wasn't his best. He wasn't really into it. He was just kind of giving uh, because he had to. Uh, You can see it all through the Bible. So when we get to to Malachi, um, God hates uh, when the Israelites have kind of polluted the sacrifice table. They have offered impure things. Um, They have not offered as God wanted. They have not offered with a right heart towards him. The true sacrifice uh, God requires is not just some animal to kind of appease for our sins. Um, The true sacrifice God requires is our hearts. Matt Redmond kind of nails it uh, in the song Heart of Worship, and he says this. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. He says, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. That's kind of where verse 6 comes back in as well. We don't, we don't sing those songs, we don't give our money, we don't come to church to try and appease God. Um, they, they are a response. If we're seeking appeasement, if we're seeking reconciliation with God, the only place we find that is Jesus on the cross. That's the thing that brings us the reconciliation. All our efforts, everything we could ever give, will go nowhere in trying to earn God's favor. We do those as a response uh, to God's great favor that he's shown us through Jesus. Uh, in, the, in the last paragraph, uh, David writes, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now David's ask um, here is kind of different to the rest of what he's prayed so far in this psalm. Uh, 
Uh, so far, he's been thinking about his relationship with God. He's been asking for mercy because of what he has done. But now his attention kind of turns outwards because he realizes that, that his sin doesn't just affect him. And his sin doesn't just affect Bathsheba. His sin doesn't just affect Uriah. But his sin affects the whole nation. One of the devastating things about sin is that its impact is, is far more reaching than we could imagine or we could understand. And so for David to repent, he also wants to protect the people that have been hurt by his sin. He calls for God uh, to build up the walls of Jerusalem to protect them. Uh, so that what David has done won't have a, a lasting negative impact on others. Uh, we, can, we can see in our lives how, how our sin affects others. Um, so if you're married and you kind of you know, look lustfully at somebody else, that's going to affect the person you looked at. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect your spouse. It's going to affect your kids. Sin has a, has a bigger impact than just a, a kind of one-to-one thing. And so when we, when we think in ourselves, when we, when we pray to God for him to have mercy on us, We've got to also think of the others that have been affected. We've got to also think um, of how, how devastating our sin has been to others, um, to the church family. And then finally, uh, so right back at the start, uh, in the little bit before verse 1, uh, we read that this psalm is written to the choir master. Uh, that can also be written chief musician. It's kind of the worship leader of the day. That means that this psalm is not just for David. It's not just for David to sing or to pray um, for his own sin. But this is a psalm that the whole of Israel can get behind. This is a psalm that unites all of God's people. This is a psalm that unites the church. Because we all need God's mercy. We all need God's love. We all need him to blot out our transgressions. Uh, And so as a church, um, now to respond, we're going to read the psalm together. Uh, because we can all pray this as one church family. Uh, And so I'd invite you to to stand, and the words are going to be on the screen, and then we're going to pray it together. Um, I'll I'll try and read at a good pace. I'm not very good at this sort of thing, but we'll see. That is different. (laughs) There we go. Cool. Uh, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. 